Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I will begin reading in verse 50. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We have been working our way over the past number of weeks now through a series that I have entitled Be Prepared that uh, is looking at some of the things that Scripture has to say about the last days. And uh, in my previous sermons, I have, uh, uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, have, some of them have been quite, quite weighty because there is a lot of warning in Scripture uh, regarding our need to be prepared for the last days and the kinds of things that as believers we might face. Um, but one of the things that I think is important for us all to remember when it comes to prophecy is that there are two main purposes in prophecy beyond giving us details about the future, which I think is kind of a distant third, actually, to the two main things that prophecy is focused on, one of which is to warn God's people and to warn those who are faithless The other is to encourage the faithful. And so just as uh, there is a lot in um, what Scripture says about the last days that ought to cause us to, to be concerned and to take warning and to take seriously what God has to say, um, there is also much that Scripture says that should, 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 should give us great encouragement and great hope and assurance just as we sang about this morning. And so many of the songs that we sang this morning relate so well to what I have to say um, to you today. So last uh, in my last sermon, um, I turned our attention from the warnings to the encouragement. And the first uh, uh, sermon that I preached along that vein um, was entitled The Return of the King from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where... Paul says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise. What a great hope we have that Christ is coming again. 
And this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 is really a parallel passage. And I'm going to read verses 51 and 52 again and just note how similar they are to that passage from uh, 1 Thessalonians that I just read. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. So the return of Christ will also be accompanied by the resurrection of the dead. What is often called the gathering of the saints. And I love that picture because it it, uh, speaks to what I mentioned uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago with the, the call of the trumpet, the trumpet call and the voice and the command of the archangel doesn't just announce that the king is returning. It's also a rallying call for God's people through the ages to be gathered to Christ and to meet him in his triumphant procession as he comes to take his rightful place as the king of kings over all creation. What a picture That is, and as I said then, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be there in that procession. And so what I want to reflect on today is the second part of that, the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, the gathering of the saints. And the resurrection is a crucial piece of the picture and a crucial part of the teaching of Scripture about the last days. We need to know and we need to understand what the Bible has to say about death and about life after death. Because what we believe about death has a lot to do with how we think about life and how we live. Life. The Bible offers us great hope and assurance that death is not the end. As Paul says, the sting of death has been removed, and therefore we need not fear it any longer. It was that hope and that assurance that enabled Paul and the other apostles and countless others through the ages to be courageous in their life in the face of great opposition. They faced ridicule and pain and suffering and poverty and homelessness and rejection and betrayal and death, many of the things that Linda listed on her prayer card. And even though they faced those things, Because they were convinced that death would not have the last word, they were not afraid of death. And in the face of that kind of adversity, they were able to live life to the full. It reminds me a little bit, and some of you probably have been here long enough to remember our dog, Cody who was, uh, I don't know, uh, 10 or 11 when he died. And we got him right when we came here in 1994. So he, he died in about 2005, I guess. But I remember as he got older, 
he fell under some bad influences um, by the name of Sharon and Thressa, I think. <laughs> and I can remember trying to discipline him. And uh, there were times when he would look at me, especially as he got older, he would look at me in kind of this defiant look and say, what, are you going to kill me? I'm almost dead anyways. There's nothing you can do to me. And really it's that same kind of attitude that Scripture calls us to. Death hurts and we grieve when our loved ones are taken away. And we have grieved with the Yachoas in these last weeks. And we've grieved with Diana Sharp in these last months. And with the Hirons at their loss of their son Tim. But death is not the last word. So ultimately it cannot touch us. We can be set free from the chains of fear and live courageously and abundantly in our hope, even in the midst of grief and the shadow of death that hangs over us all. So I want to look at what Paul has to say here in 1 Corinthians 15 in the passage that we read and really in the broader um, chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole, which I encourage you to read uh, when you go home, the entire chapter, because Paul has some wonderful things to say about our hope, not only in the resurrection of Christ, but our resurrection as well. In, uh, I want to start in verse 56 where Paul says that by his death, Christ has removed the sting of death. We can relate to that analogy because we all have some degree of uh, awareness of bees, right? Uh, I can remember when we, just a few weeks ago, when we were planning Diane's uh, um, retirement celebration in our backyard, there was a particular individual that was very concerned that we take care of the bees. Uh, I won't name who that person is, but she knows. And the fact is that bees can kind of be be fearful things. I, I'm allergic to bees, so if I get stung, I tend to swell up, and uh, it's not a fun thing. But a bee without a stinger is no threat at all. It may be a nuisance. But it's not a threat. So what is the sting of death? Paul says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And he talks about this idea in more detail in Romans 7. I won't take you there, but I'll just kind of summarize what Paul says there. He says the law, the 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 the, the The power of sin is the law, and what he means by that is that the law defines what sin is. But because in our fallenness we are rebellious by nature, the law that God gives, the commands that he gives that say basically do this and don't do this, that is good and for our good, but our inclination is actually to use the command as an enticement to sin. 
if you're a parent, you know that really well, right? Because you tell your kids, do this, or stay away from this, or don't do this, and then all of a sudden it becomes a fascination with them that they have to see how close they can get, if not cross the line. And so it's because of sin that we are condemned and alienated from God. So Paul says the sting of death is sin because death represents condemnation and separation from God. But by his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, Jesus took on himself the condemnation that we deserve. And for all who put their trust in him, there is no longer any condemnation. And death no longer represents eternal separation from God. In fact, for those who trust in him as their savior and serve him as their king, death itself is transformed from the doorway to eternal separation from God to the doorway to eternal life in God's presence. So Paul says, the sting of death is removed. Death no longer results in separation from God. Then in verses 54 and 55, Paul talks about how through his resurrection, Death has been swallowed up in victory. And he's actually quoting a couple of passages, one from Isaiah and one from from Hosea. Not only did Jesus die for our sin, but he also conquered death itself by rising from the grave. And having conquered the grave, he now possesses an indestructible life. The writer to the Hebrews says, I love that, an indestructible life. He is no longer subject to decay and death. In fact, Paul says, having died and risen again, he cannot die now. And the wonderful thing is that Christ did not just overcome death for himself, but he has broken the chains of death. For all who belong to him. He is the firstborn, Paul says, from the dead. And just as he has been raised to an indestructible life, all who are his will also follow him, not to the grave, but through the grave, to resurrection life. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Our mortality will be swallowed up by life. I love that expression. Our mortality will be swallowed up by life. So he's able to say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the questions that that 
brings up for many of us, and Paul anticipates it actually in verse 35 of this chapter, is the question, what will our resurrected selves be like? And Paul makes several points, and I'll just summarize them for you. The first point that he makes is that there are all kinds of different bodies that are suited for different kinds of things. Um, and we know that to be true. You, you, we have a certain kind of body that's suited for life on land, not very good for life in the air, uh, and not very good for life in the water or underground, right? It's suited for certain kinds of things. And that's the point that Paul is kind of making. And he says in verses 44 through 49, he says, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And the first man, Adam, was from the earth. He was a man of dust. And we as descendants of Adam have essentially inherited from him a natural body that is of the dust that is suited to this earth. And so we remind ourselves at the time of someone's passing earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to uh, to dust. We came from the dust and to the dust we shall return. We say on, uh, what's the name of that festival that we celebrate before Easter? Ash Wednesday. There we go. You'd think I'd know that. I'm the pastor. The second man, though, Paul goes on to say, is from heaven. And those who belong to him will inherit a body after his fashion that is suited to heaven. So just as we have been born, we have, or just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, just as we have borne Adam's image, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Paul says. So there's a difference. He's making a distinction between these bodies that are suited for this earth and our resurrected selves that are suited for the new environment in which God will place us, the kingdom of God. One of the differences between the earthly body and the heavenly body is that the earthly body is mortal and subject to decay. You feel that? I feel that every morning when I get out of bed. And as the days go by, it takes a few more steps to get things greased up. We are clay pots. We're subject to aches and pains. And one of the things that we face in life is that our strength will inevitably give way to weakness. And I am struggling to, to, to come to terms with that. Just ask my wife. I think I think I'm still 25, and I pay for it. Isaiah says, the grass, all men are like grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fade. But the heavenly body, Paul says, is eternal. It is immortal. Notice what he says in verse 50. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can the perishable 
inherit the imperishable. These earthly bodies are suited for the earth, not for heaven. And so in verse 53, he says that when Christ returns, our earthly bodies, which have served their purpose for life on this earth, will be transformed so that they are suited for our new life in God's presence. And that at least is part of what Paul means when he says that whether we're dead or alive, when Christ returns, we will all be changed because the perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Another difference between the earthly body and the heavenly is in regard to their glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul draws a contrast between uh, this earthly physical life that is wasting away and what he calls the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. It's quite an expression. The eternal weight of glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, he uses the analogy of a seed to help us understand something of the nature of the resurrected life. In verse 36, he says, a seed has to die and be buried in the ground in order for new life to come out of it. You can actually keep seeds for a long time. I did a little research this week and found that the oldest known seed that actually when planted was actually germinated is 38,000 years old. They found it under some ice pack and they were able to take the, 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 the seed and, and create a plant out of that seed after 38,000 years. So seeds can last a long time, but it's not until you bury them and they begin to decay that the true nature and glory of the seed is revealed. So Paul says in verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be. When you sow a seed, you don't expect a seed to pop out of the ground. It's something different. You sow a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But the point he's making is that there's a tremendous difference between a seed and a plant. Just uh, up the road here on Livernois at around Auburn Road is the largest beb oak tree in America. I had never heard of a beb oak, but uh, have you seen that tree? When you drive by it, it's a massive tree. That tree came out of an acorn, just a little ball, a little seed. And yet the seed contains everything that the plant will be. But the plant that grows from it possesses a far greater glory and a far greater beauty than the seed itself. The point that Paul is making is that we were created to be glorious creatures. And on this side, we can't imagine the glory and the beauty that God intends us to have. 
But it's like the difference between a seed and an oak tree. So Paul says in verses 42 through 44, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. By far, though, the greatest difference between our earthly life and our resurrection life is that we will be done with sin once and for all. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's a reference to the day when the king returns. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. So not only will our bodies be transformed from earthly bodies into heavenly bodies, but our whole selves will be made new. And what God decided to do all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, when he said, let us make man in our image, that purpose that God established at the very beginning will finally be complete and we will be like him. Paul says in Romans 8 that God has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And when we see him, when the veil that conceals his glory is finally peeled back and the redeemed see him as he truly is, we will be transformed into his likeness. His character will be complete in us. His nature will be our nature. And just as he is without sin, our struggle with sin will be over. We will be like him, holy, blameless, perfectly obedient to our Father, and perfectly trusting of our Father. That old man that continues to dog us, no matter how deeply we desire to be holy, that old man will be gone for good. Don't you look forward to that day? No more failure, no more shame, no more need to hide our brokenness. How much energy does hiding take? Don't you long to be done with sin once and for all? To be holy, to be whole? The prophet Malachi uses a wonderful image to describe what I think of when I think of that. He says that we will leap like calves released from the stall. Sharon and I love to watch a show. on. Uh, it's a British show, so it's called This Farming Life. Have any of you ever heard of it? I've mentioned it in a sermon before. Yeah, a couple of you. 
But they show these, and it's true, you know, that the farmers will uh, have their cattle indoors in the barn all winter long, and in the spring they let them out, and these big honking cows are jumping in the air and running through the field because they're so excited to be free. Not only will we possess a glory that we can't imagine, but we will be like Him. And being like Him, we will be more our true selves than we have ever been. Let me say that again. Being like Him, we will be more our true selves than we have ever been. I can't help but think that when we see each other in glory, we will recognize each other in a way that we never have before. Because when we see each other, we will see Jesus. And we will say, Yes, I recognize you. I recognize you. John Sharp. Chris Ochoa. Justin Mallard, Bev Tremarsh. I recognize not just your old self, but your true self, complete in the image of God. And I can see the resemblance to the seed in the face of glory. And at the same time, I recognize you in a way that I never have before. Because it's abundantly evident to me now that you are who you were always meant to be. Just like Jesus. And yet more yourself than you have ever been. All of that, Paul says, is going to happen on Resurrection Day. When the same Jesus who died at the hands of Pilate, but who rose again and has conquered the grave, comes to claim his rightful place as the true king, the king of the living, the immortal king of a people that he has raised to an indestructible life. That is our great hope and assurance as believers. So Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And in 1 Thessalonians, he says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But what until then? Several people actually asked me after my last sermon, what does the Bible say about the interim period of time between when we die and when we are raised at the Lord's return? I think sometimes we get this sense that the resurrection happens as soon as you die. But that's not what scripture says. We will all be raised. 
together on the last day. But for many of us, it's a question of some concern because we have loved ones, as we've already mentioned, several of them that have gone on before us. And we want to know what is their experience in the present, in what uh, we sometimes call theologically the intermediate state, a nice uh, antiseptic kind of expression, right? The fact is, Scripture doesn't provide us with an airtight answer. And as a result, Christians have reached differing conclusions. On the one side, Paul refers to death as sleep, and that has led some to the conclusion that we don't have a conscious awareness um, during that period of time. And the, 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 the idea is commonly known as soul sleep. How many of you have heard of that before? But the point that they make is that when we sleep, hours can go by, but it can seem like an instant. And so even though many years may pass between our death and the resurrection, in our experience, it will be as though the moment we die, we also awake to the glorious return of Christ. But on the other side are several passages that speak of believers as though they are consciously aware and in the presence of Christ the moment they die. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is contemplating his own um, death because he is in prison and he doesn't know whether he will ever get out of prison or whether he'll be executed by the Romans. And so he talks about this and reflects on that and, and he basically says... I'm not sure if I want to remain in the flesh because if I remain in the flesh, it's better for you because I continue to, can continue to, to share in ministry with you or if I want to be with Christ, which for me is far better, right? And he reflects in similar ways in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. But to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That seems to be a pretty strong statement. That we may be away from the body, but we can still be at home with the Lord. And Jesus seems to confirm that as well when he says to the thief on the cross, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So it's entirely possible that Though the body may be asleep in the grave, the spirit or soul can still be fully aware of being in the presence of Christ. And that, I know, is a great comfort to many who have lost loved ones. I don't expect that we will be able to resolve this issue before glory. There are a lot of things we're going to want final answers on, aren't there? But I'm pretty confident that we can trust God to do the right thing. And when we look back from the vantage point of eternity, it probably won't seem as big to us then as it does now. Either way, we need not grieve as those who have no hope because Christ has conquered the grave He has removed the sting of death, and he has transformed death into the doorway to an indestructible life. 
and a glory awaits us that is far beyond what we can imagine. Therefore, he says, as he brings this discussion to a close, he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because death is not the end, everything matters. And that brings us back to the beginning. What we believe about death should inform how we live. If death cannot touch us, then nothing can touch us. And if we have been set free from the shackles of death, if the sting of death has been removed, if this body of decay is going to be swallowed up by life, if our broken cells are going to be made new in the likeness of Christ, then what is there to hold us back? We are free to live fully and courageously. I think about that with the apostles. They saw Jesus raised from the dead, and no one could convince them that they hadn't seen what they saw. And they spent their lives bearing witness to that fact. This isn't, you can find a great sale at Macy's kind of fact. This is earth-shattering, time-shattering, life-changing truth. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a hope. Death is not the end. May we share it. May we proclaim it from the rooftops. May our lives be transformed today, not just as we wait, but today by the knowledge of this wonderful truth that God has given us life and a future and a hope. Just as the apostles spent their lives proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, may we too bear witness to this life-changing truth. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Encourage each other with these words. Let's pray. Father, We thank you so much for the glorious hope that you have given to us. And Lord, your word enables us to peel back the curtain just a little bit and look into to see what you have in store for those who love you. And yet you have also said no mind can conceive, no one can imagine what you have in store for your people. And so, Father, I pray that in the midst of a world that is crumbling and that is uncertain and where we lose those that we love and we struggle with grief 
and we struggle with fear and we don't know sometimes what the right thing is to do, help us to hold on to the hope that you have given us and be encouraged. And then, Lord, with that courage, may we bear witness to this amazing truth. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And with him, he will bring all who have fallen asleep in him. Help us, Father, we pray, to live by this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.